Good morning from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, August 13th. In today's news, the U.S. reports its highest number of coronavirus deaths in a single day since mid-May. President Trump says the Postal Service cannot facilitate mail-in voting because it can't access emergency funding that he is blocking. And liberal prosecutors face backlash over lenient charges following unrest and looting. But first, the big idea. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris opened a new front in the presidential campaign here on Wednesday, forcefully prosecuting their case against Trump and attempting to showcase a much different vision for the country as the Democratic ticket appeared together for the first time. And what were perhaps the most crisp and focused speeches either has given during the campaign, the new running mates defined how they will pursue the general election with a sharp focus on what they cast as the president's inadequacies, an embrace of the power of women, a call to action on climate change, and a defense of the protesters who have filled America's streets in recent months. The junior senator from California homed in on Trump's competence. She said he had mishandled the coronavirus pandemic, with the result being illness, death, and unemployment. She urged the nation to seize on optimism, to celebrate the immigrant experience, and to simply move on from the last four years. And a vivid reminder of how this pandemic has upended the campaign, Biden's introduction of Harris as his running mate did not come before throngs of cheering supporters, arms raised above their heads, as as has been the case for generations. Instead, they walked together into a nearly empty high school gymnasium just a few miles from Biden's house here. The speeches were greeted with deafening silences, where normally there would have been raucous cheers. Biden's announcement reached for history, putting the first black woman and the first Asian American woman on a major party ticket at a moment when our country faces a racial reckoning. That sentiment was overt in their remarks. Wednesday's appearance shifted the campaign fully into general election mode. Throughout the last year and a half, Biden has talked about the Obama-Biden administration, but on Wednesday afternoon, he began to promote the Biden-Harris administration. He said that he asked Harris to be the last person in the room advising him, just as he had requested to be the last one to speak to Barack Obama before major decisions. The two candidates are separated by 22 years. They come from different coasts of the country. They hold different ethnic backgrounds, and they clashed bitterly during the primaries. But on Wednesday, the merged partnership sought to project a warm relationship, one in which Biden said he considered Harris and her entire family to be honorary Bidens. In his introduction of her, Biden recalled that it happened to be the third anniversary of the deadly events in Charlottesville, Virginia, when white supremacists marched through that city carrying tiki torches and chanting hate. Fashion critic Robin Gavon was struck by how during Biden's speech, no videotape rolled, no still photographs appeared on a screen to remind people of the angry faces or of the sheer number of protesters. Instead, Biden asked his audience, the folks watching from afar on televisions or on their phones, to close their eyes and remember that day. He asked them to recreate that scene in their mind and more importantly, to recall the emotions that they felt. He asked them to look inward and to consider what Charlottesville represents in the trajectory of our country. There was no one in the audience to boo in recollection of the deadly mayhem that accompanied the Charlottesville rallies. 
There was no one in the room to shout an amen or to clap in agreement when Biden derided Trump for saying there were some very good people on both sides. Instead, everyone watching was asked to sit quietly and consider this country's darkness. It was an unnerving political moment. Politics isn't about the quiet, at least not now. It's fueled by bellowing voices and jingoistic cheers and belligerence. Politics doesn't look inward. It's a world populated by extroverts climbing over each other to get to the top and the spotlight. At some point, it becomes impossible to shout any louder, doesn't it? When it was Harris's turn to speak, she stepped to the microphone with an enormous smile. And for a moment, she said nothing. Under normal circumstances, this would have been the scene when the freshly announced running mate would have basked in the applause. Supporters would have been chanting her name. Instead, in that brief but thick pause, the brief but thick quiet, a certain truth could emerge, which is the weight of it all. The worst economic crisis since 1933, the worst racial crisis since 1968, and the worst public health crisis since 1918. She didn't end her remarks with pessimism, though. She didn't finish by roaring into the microphone some slogan to rev up supporters who were watching. Instead, she described the change seekers as, quote, a coalition of conscience. Now, that's not the making of a punchy call and response exhortation. These were words on which to ruminate. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, 1,500 of our fellow Americans died yesterday from COVID-19. Meanwhile, Trump continued to press for the nation's schools to fully reopen and bring children back into the classrooms, for businesses to open, and for college and professional athletes to fill stadiums. He threatened to divert federal money from any school that doesn't open. Our country has now seen its seven-day average of newly reported deaths remain above 1,000 for 17 consecutive days. Georgia reported 105 deaths yesterday, its second triple-digit day in a row. North Carolina reported an initial 45 deaths, tying its highest daily number from July. Texas reported 324 additional fatalities from the disease. At Etowah High School in Woodstock, Georgia, Dozens of seniors packed together to pose side-by-side for a class photo when they returned on August 3rd. Not a single smile was covered with a mask. Just over a week later, all the students have been sent home and the school is shut because of an outbreak. Trump declared yesterday that a deal with Congress to deliver relief for the American people is, quote, not going to happen. In declaring the whole process over, Trump used a news conference to criticize Democrats for trying to fund election preparations in a COVID relief bill. His comments came hours after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin spoke for the first time since the talks fell apart last week, but their conversation didn't break the impasse, instead leading to another round of finger-pointing. Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer accused the Trump administration of refusing to budge, and Mnuchin accused Pelosi of mischaracterizing their conversation. More than 30 million Americans are still out of work and looking to the government for help. Many of those who are still working, though, tell us that they've never been more scared. Grocery workers, for example, say that their morale has reached an all-time low. Angel Manners 
found purpose and pride this spring for the first time ever in her job at a supermarket in Northern Kentucky, where she's worked for the past decade. Customers would come into the store and praise her as a hero for putting herself at risk during the pandemic so that they could have food. Her bosses boosted her hourly pay by two bucks. Suddenly, she was essential. Nearly five months in, though, all that's gone. Angel, who's 43 years old, said they don't even treat us like humans anymore. Grocery workers across the country feel crushed as the pandemic wears on with no end in sight. Overwhelmed employees are quitting mid-shift in increasing numbers. Those who remain on the floor say they're overworked. They're taking on extra hours. They're enforcing mask requirements and dealing with increasingly hostile customers. Most retailers have done away with hazard pay, even as the work remains as hazardous as ever and the employees are vulnerable to infection and worse. Employees who took sick leave at the beginning of the pandemic say they can no longer afford to take unpaid time off now, so they're going into work even when they feel unwell. Number two, Trump said yesterday that the U.S. Postal Service is incapable of facilitating mail-in voting because it cannot access the emergency funding that he is blocking. And he made clear that requests and pleas really for additional aid are non-starters in any negotiations with Capitol Hill. Trump's been railing against mail-in voting for months. And he said the cash-strapped agencies in large role in the November election would perpetuate what he called, quote, one of the greatest frauds in history. These remarks came hours after congressional Democrats intensified calls for more oversight of the Postal Service, and particularly the new Postmaster General, Trump mega-donor, Louis DeJoy. The effort comes after DeJoy ushered a wholesale reorganization of the agency's executive ranks last Friday night. He's restructured operations. He's instituted a a hiring freeze on top of other cost-cutting measures. All of this has already been blamed for significant backups in the delivery of the mail and delays. In recent weeks, the Postal Service has warned states that longstanding classification practices for mailing ballots and other political mail may no longer be enough to ensure timely delivery for the November election, exacerbating fears that Trump is using our nation's mail service to aid his own re-election campaign. Postal officials, Trump appointees, told the nation's secretaries of state this week to use high-priority first-class postage, which costs 55 cents an item, for all election mail, rather than third class or the bulk rate of 20 cents, which has been typically used. The issue is that states don't have the extra 35 cents times a factor of millions. Bulk mail delivery takes three to 10 days, according to the Postal Service, while first class mail takes two to five days. But postal workers have been told for decades, and it is the normal practice, to treat election mail including all voter registration materials, voter information, and ballots, as first-class items. This affords them privileges that their 20-cent price point ordinarily would not allow. This is a good reminder that if it is at all possible, you should drop off your ballots at election sites to make sure that your vote counts. Number three. In Chicago, where police arrested more than 100 people after rampant looting early Monday devastated the city's central business district, 
A lot of local officials are blaming liberal policy changes by top prosecutor Kim Fox for the shattered windows and the raided shelves. Fox has told reporters that she stands by the reforms that she's put in place, which include raising the standard for felony theft charges from a minimum of $300 to $1,000 in stolen goods. Fox's raised bar for felonies has frustrated the Chicago police superintendent, David Brown, who has complained bitterly that repeat offenders are cycling through the court system due to reduced charges, low bail amounts, and an inefficient electronic monitoring system. Meanwhile, in Portland, Oregon, officers arrested dozens of people over three nights of raucous protests this past weekend, but almost everyone who was arrested for disorderly conduct or interfering with a peace officer will not be charged with any crime according to the district attorney, Mike Schmidt. Schmidt says his policy makes a clear distinction between the small number of anarchists and agitators who engage in violence and destruction and the otherwise peaceful protesters who sometimes get swept up in mass arrests as police move to quell unwieldy demonstrations. The decision opposes, though, a recent call for harsher penalties from the police union, and Portland's police chief, Chuck Lovell, says his officers will continue to make arrests whenever they witness crimes. And protests have once again turned violent in Richmond, Virginia, where residents say the turmoil has eroded their support for the demonstrations. Some, among a group of about 50 protesters, vandalized downtown businesses and smashed windows at the city's John Marshall Courthouse, causing what Democratic Mayor LeVar Stoney says was hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. More and more residents in Richmond are telling our reporters that the relentless weeks of demonstrations are taking a toll. For Janice Knuckles, who considers herself a liberal Democrat, the early thrill of the marches and the chanting has given way to daily dread. Guns have become a common sight in the arms of the protesters. People relieve themselves in yards and alleyways. Janice's husband tried to tell some of the protesters the other night that while he really appreciates their cause, he and his wife were trying to sleep. Janice, who's 63 and white, said the response of the protesters was to start yelling, no justice, no peace, louder and louder. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, August 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 